Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. In the 20 years after the end of the Second World War, the Holocaust was recalled as part of the horror of Hitler's Reich, but in the popular commemoration rarely singled out as the single greatest manifestation of its moral depravity. How and when did this begin to change, and with what shifting emphasis do different countries remember the crime? In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of The Holocaust, History and Memory, talks to the critics' political editor, Graham Stewart, about how Eastern as well as Western Europe has slowly come to terms with the murder of six million Jews. On the 2nd May 1945, the Times newspaper carried its obituary of Adolf Hitler. In many respects, it was a a decent effort at at an early draft of uh, historical biography, but it had as much to say about Hitler's hatred of Slavs as it did his hatred of Jews, and no mention at all about uh, the industrial-scale murder of the Jewish people, what we now call the Holocaust. Professor Black, um, by then, by May 1945, uh, Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen had been liberated, and the horrors, if, if not the full extent of them, had at least been seen on newsreels. Why then was the Holocaust not given the same prominence as it is accorded now? Well, I think that's partly a question about the situation in 1945, and it's partly to do with uh, development since. I think you're right that in 1945 there was already, as indeed there had been for a number of years, an awareness of the mass slaughter. I don't think quite the scale of it had was understood at that stage. Um, the extermination camps, and obviously, as you know, there's a distinction between concentration camps and extermination camps, both of which were intended to see people killed, uh, but concentration camps, they were to be worked to death, as it were, first. Extermination camps, they were uh, to be killed as soon as they arrived. And the extermination camps were all in areas that had been overrun by the Soviet Union and where the Germans had made quite a significant attempt to try and conceal what they had been doing. So I think it's fair to say that although um, mass slaughter was already known and in fact had been widely mentioned, including in the British press, including Parliament, I don't think the actual scale of it was yet understood. Um, The Nuremberg trials, of course, uh, put on trial many of the surviving ringleaders of the Third Reich, and count four of the indictment refers to the mass murder of Jews. Um, The term genocide was very recently coined. I I think your book suggests 1944 was the first time in print, and the term Holocaust wasn't yet yet in in common currency. Is there a respect in which the uh, adoption of these terms, like genocide and Holocaust later, has uh, allowed us to understand Um, what happened as distinct and extreme events in a way in which in the immediate aftermath of a continent uh, which is, you know, a large part of which is destroyed, uh, terms like mass murder um, didn't in any way trivialise what happened but but just portrayed them as part of a greater tragedy. 
Yes, I think that's a very fair statement. I think there was a um, an already strong awareness in '45, but it becomes more pronounced both later in in the '40s, in part of the process of bringing justice against the murderers is as pursued. But then, obviously, many aspects of it don't come through too later. I mean, as I discuss in my book, there is the attempt to argue in the 1950s the distinction between, as it were, good and bad Germans, the bad Germans being associated with the SS, the good Germans with the Wehrmacht. And I think it's fair to say that that distinction in scholarly terms takes a while to break down, and that still hasn't really percolated through to a, a lot of the public. I mean, I was very struck. I was listening on uh, the E-Day to um, LBC, because they did an interview with me about something. And prior to that, somebody was talking about his father, and he said that his father had been in the Hitler Youth, and the Hitler Youth, he said, was no different to the Boy Scouts. And you know, when you can get that sort of remark made without people being called out on it, um, you have to realize the extent to which um, the um, nature of Nazi ideology and the understanding of it and of support for the Third Reich um, has often been soft peddled. Um, so I think it's fair to say that. Um, a full engagement with what happened, uh, whilst in some circles well understood, in other circles it's been very much attenuated, and, and in part, actually, the very process of trying to bring it back as a crime, uh, as it was, on particular individuals, whilst, uh, you know, I think a, a, an appropriate practice, in a way, served to underrate the extent to which there was a much fuller and more broad-based responsibility. I want to look at this in different countries, but also in terms of free blocks. The free blocks are the scholarship, the memorialising of what happened, and atonement. And I want to start by asking, did the scholarship, which is to say the uh, the, the historical understanding of what actually happened, uh, did that then drive the subsequent memorialization and, and attempts at atonement, or uh, were different factors at play, and did the scholarship sometimes follow a more popular sentiment? Well, I, I would say, uh, I don't want to be difficult, but I would say neither of those, Graham. I would say, as is so often the case, the scholarship proceeded on different lines and with often very little impact. I mean, academics sort of don't like to believe that. They, they believe that they are key figures in popular understanding of history. But actually, I don't think that's true at all. And insofar as you're looking at um, uh, public discussion... I mean, I think that you would be better better advised to think about the way in which you have a generational shift in attitude in Germany in the 60s, the way in which you have the impact in Eastern Europe of the end of the Iron Curtain and the fall of the communist regimes from 1989. These things are much more formative 
um, than uh, the writings of historians, and the same for, let's say, with France. I mean, obviously, there are one or two historians. The American Paxton's a classic example, who's often discussed in this context, who produced, you know, significant works that were much discussed. But in, in, to my mind, the, there is a big difference that, in, in essence, during the Mitterrand years, Mitterrand in many senses, covered up the Vichy, um, and you know France changed its attitude very dramatically towards apology and towards a very more active public uh, engagement with what had happened in the Holocaust once Mitterrand had been replaced by Chirac. Now, that was far more important than any um, seminars of academics. It is extraordinary, though, that, that um, you know, up until and including the 1980s, the period of Mitterrand's presidency, there were leading French Vichy officials still alive who ha were deeply implicated in the rounding up and deportation of French Jews and, and who were uh, uh, you know, living pretty much at large without much fear of prosecution. Mitterrand was a thoroughly disgusting individual, and people have made efforts to cover up for him because they like the idea that in some way uh, it suits them to think that the French tradition is of the uh, far right, the um, leading toward the Front National of being always the people who are most awful and disgusting, and many of them are, and indeed were. Um, but in fact, there was a solid strand of pretty disgusting people on the left as well. Hmm. Um before Mitterrand and before Pompidou was, of course, de Gaulle, who had a very different Second World War record to Mitterrand. I wonder why during de Gaulle's period that there wasn't a greater attempt to find a historical reckoning. Well, I think in the case of de Gaulle, there's partly um, a an emphasis on what he saw as a common Frenchness of suffering. I think that that was an important component. Incidentally, although in a very different political universe, you could see that attitude in some of the communist states in the 1960s. In other words, to emphasize the large numbers of, say, Poles that had been murdered under the Germans, rather than specifically the very disproportionately high number of, of Jew, Jewish Poles. Um, so I, I think also in the case of de Gaulle, you've got to look at different stages. I mean, what de Gaulle stands for in 1945, which is an attempt at a sort of degree of reconciliation, um, is rather different to what where de Gaulle is by the early 60s. And uh, as with so many people, it's too easy to provide just simply one account. But yes, under de Gaulle, um, there is a, um, um, a an emphasis on the, the suffering of French uh, men and women, but particularly French men, rather than specifically looking at any group within France. Mm. Well, that point you make about reconciliation, post-war reconciliation, is, is an important one, and it has many, many different strands. Uh, the uh, NATO, it, you know, Germany becomes a member of NATO, West Germany, I should say, becomes a member of NATO, and during the 1950s there is a uh, political interest amongst the West perhaps not to dig too deep uh, into uh, what many prominent Germans were doing in, in the 1940s. That breaks down a bit in the 1960s when you've got this younger generation. And I wonder if the younger generation were more 
critical and more open to finding out the reality of what had happened to that earlier generation precisely because they were not themselves responsible for it. So they had that degree of, of distance. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, during the chancellorship of Conrad Adenauer, which is, I think it's 49 to 63, um, a large number of Nazis you know, were employed in responsible positions in West Germany, and very few were tried for war crimes. And we know that there was quite a lot of an attempt to, to bluntly cover up the situation. And I think it's fair to say that that um, position... Uh, changed from the 60s. I think there's partly a generational one, partly it is politics, um, partly it's uh, specific um, events, uh, the 1963 to 65 uh, trial uh, in Frankfurt on people involved, in, uh, 23 men involved in Auschwitz, and the, uh, including two of the deputy camp commandants, was a, an important uh, uh, element and also, I think it's fair to say that um, in West Germany in the Adenauer years, the um, the how should one put it, the um, those who were linked politically with the uh, emigres, refugees, whatever you want to call them, people that had come from areas like Silesia and Eastern Pomerania, um, had been pushed out by the new communist regimes, many of whom were fairly extreme, they were often quite um, well linked in with the CDU. And I think it's fair to say that that interest, although it continued, becomes weaker in the late 60s. And at the same time, there is more of a reaction against uh, Holocaust deniers and more of an uneasiness about um, the German past. I mean, one doesn't want to push this um, too far. There were still groups of, you know, ex uh, SS, um people going around having sort of celebratory dinners and such like. But I think it's fair to say that the atmosphere was changing by the late 60s and even more uh, in the 1970s. And of course, in, by the 1970s, you've got... Uh, uh, Willy Brandt as uh, Bundeschancellor, you've got a different, you've got a willingness to take a different public stance, and I think that's quite important. Well, there's that very symbolic moment in uh, Warsaw in 1970 when Willy Brandt is the Chancellor. He, he kneels in atonement in front of the ghetto uh, monument there, uh, and uh, as a, uh, a symbolic moment, that, that's obviously significant. But then in 1972, you have the, the Austrian Kurt Waldheim, who uh, you know, was directly or indirectly um, uh, involved in uh, the deportation of Jews from Greece and Yugoslavia during the war. Amazingly, someone with this very very questionable war record, and again, I'm, I'm using language as generous as I can. Um, he's made Secretary General of the United Nations and remains Secretary General until 1981. And then uh, from 1986 to 92, he's President of Austria. Um, how does that square with a sense that, 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 that countries in the West you know, could, could tolerate someone like, like that in a way in which they wouldn't now? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, the Austrian process of engaging with what had happened during World War II was, 
shall we say, uh, much more limited than that or in West Germany. I mean, in West Germany, many people were not encompassed within it, but in, uh, in uh, you know, in, in Austria, um, I think it's fair to say that there was a much less willingness to apologize for what had happened. And indeed, it's re I mean, you know, I discuss in my book on the Holocaust, I mean, it's both on the situation after 45 and also the situation before 45. And Austria is a classic example of, I would say, a kind of, you know, because there was a tradition of writing about um, the Third Reich in kind of a sort of perverted modernism and sort of in terms of, you know, uh, as one of the factors in, uh, behind race warfare. But there's also, you know, some listeners will be, may be, well be uncomfortable about hearing about this, there's a kind of rather perverse, nasty, uh, tradition of aggressive Catholicism, uh, not by any means implying that all Catholics were involved in this, or would, and that many Catholics, of course, were revolted by it. But there was that element, and it's no accident that in areas that were heavily Catholic, Austria, Bavaria, Croatia, um, um, you could get really a disproportionately high number of people involved in uh, anti-Semitic butchery. Well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Daniel Goldhagen in 1996 wrote um, a very controversial book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which, uh, if I may um, very briefly summarise, uh, suggested that the hatred that produced the Holocaust was much more deep-seated than merely a generation being hypnotised by Hitler. Um, what, what effect did that book have, particularly in German-speaking countries like uh, Germany and, and Austria, and um, how did that either advance or um, uh, change the, the, the popular debate? Well, I mean, it, it did have an effect. Uh, it was translated into German uh, at once, and um, Goldhagen had a book tour there in '96, uh, which had, um, you know, quite a lot of attention. I mean, I think it's reasonable to say there were a number of different developments in the 1990s. There was the much greater attention, the controversy about the role of the Wehrmacht in. Uh, mass murder, and that I think possibly hit hardest, you know, the photography and all the issues surrounding that. Um, there was also the uh, the uh, German, as it were, need to adjust to a different public history as part of the uh, reunification with East Germany. So I would say that, you know, Goldhagen was just part of a wider process in the 1990s. And um, it followed the so-called, um, you know, historical war, if you like, or controversy among historians that had occurred in 1986 to 87, in which there'd been a controversy as to whether um, Chancellor Cole, um, who famously, of course, went to, took Reagan to see the cemetery at Bitburg, in which there were SS um, people in there, and, uh, you know, whether he was trying to sort of normalize German history. So I think it's fair to say that after, you know, a period after World War II, when there'd been an attempt to quieten things down, uh, there was much more um, controversy um, in the um, in the 90s. And, you know, the, the Wehrmacht exhibition, the one I'm referring to, uh, which was arranged by the uh, Hamburg Social Research Institute and which toured Germany and Austria from 1995 onwards, 
Um, I think it had nearly a million visitors by 1999, which is a lot of people to go and see essentially 1,500 photos, very grim photos of Wehrmacht soldiers executing and murdering people. Um, and I think it's fair to say that its thesis that the army instead of solely the SS had been active in the Holocaust, that was very much sort of, that really did uh, hit home because Goldhagen was talking more generally in a sense, but also in a more diffused fashion, where seeing photos of uh, German soldiers, you know, taking part in murder uh, was, I think, very pointed for people. Um, and um, I think it's fair to say that that and the visual component of it really gripped people who often were curiously oblivious to, to written sources. I wonder if the sheer enormity of the crime of the Holocaust is such that it is, um, in, in some respects, distorted the teaching and understanding of German history before that, which is to say, one, uh, as a historian, one begins to uh, look at uh, aspects of German history as, as leading up to this big event, uh, whereas, in fact, that, that's uh, maybe uh, uh, the wrong way to look at things. H has it had this effect? Well, I think that's a very good question. We maybe ought to have a separate discussion on German history over the last couple of hundred years. Um, it certainly bulks very large in public discussion outside Germany. I mean, if you think about it, in the case of Britain, it's a part of the national curriculum. And, you know, whereas, for example, most people have never heard of Bismarck or Wilhelm II or German industrialism or, you know, or, or German romanticism. So, I mean, yes, I think there's no doubt it bulks large. Um, I think most people are aware that modern Germany is not the same as Germany in uh, of the Third Reich. Mm. Uh, in 2002, the uh, historian Jörg Friedrich published Der Brand, which was about the Allied bombing of Germany during the war, and it was interpreted as um, seeking a sort of an equivalence between that bombing of uh, largely civilian areas and and the uh, gas chambers. Um, it, firstly, is, is that a fair summary of uh, Friedrich's work, and how influential has this idea that you know, everybody suffered and the Germans suffered as much as anyone else, a kind of an equivalence of suffering. How, to what extent is that becoming a, a prevailing view now? Well, I can give you my personal view, and I've written about Friedrich and other works, and I've also written a book on air warfare. So my own view is that there is no equivalence, and I think it's an absurd proposition. But your particular question is, is this view gaining more traction? And I think it's fair to say that it is gaining more traction both in Germany and more widely. There seems to be a um, failure to understand why World War II was fought. I think that's one, and why it was fought in the fashion it was fought. And then, and here, you know, we can discuss um, this, and again, we might probably need a separate discussion. Um, but the current tradition, which you see very strongly in Britain, about trashing uh, the British past, trashing British history, trashing British institutions, um, trashing specifically Churchill, uh, is part and parcel of an argument that in some way 
Um, there was mass murder by uh, the Allies, which was the equivalent. It's, a, it's an absurdity, but it is, a, you know, and as I said, I've written quite extensively about this in a number of books, but it is a view that you hear increasingly propounded. And you know, it's interesting because it, it goes then in the whole host of other directions. Now, I don't know how unfocused you wish me to be here, but you know, we can look at the way in which you have a similar and parallel uh, discussion about the origins of World War One, as that in some way, uh, you know, the uh, the Germans who invaded Belgium and France were no more responsible for the war than the British who acted in defence of Belgium under their treaty guarantee. So you know, exactly the same kind of failure to think through this and a, a preference for the idea that everybody is guilty. And again, you see it. Um, you know, essentially, and again, some listeners will be horrified by this, and you know, maybe they—that's a good thing. People need to be jerked into thinking, they don't, including disagreeing with me. But the idea that um, reprehensible acts of individual police brutality in the West are the same as uh, mass uh, activities of authoritarian states in which there is brutalization of much of the population. Um, you know, you see that with people at the present day taking those views. We've been talking a lot about the uh, response to the Holocaust in uh, Western European countries, but um, I'd like to think a little bit about Eastern Europe and, and um, Russia as well. Um, for a long time, of course, the prism of remembering the Holocaust was also taking place during the period of the Cold War, a Cold War in which the Soviet Union was uh, supporting um, um, uh, the uh, Arab uh, neighbours of Israel and uh, the United States and Western countries were uh, supporting Israel. Uh, what effect did that uh, Cold War division have on how communist countries, and particularly the Soviet Union, had towards uh, reflecting on the Holocaust? Well, it was certainly important, but there were other elements as well. The communist ideology did not like the notion of distinguishing between groups within uh, communist societies. So the the degree to which there had been much higher casualties among Jews and that Jews had been uh, chosen by the Germans for particular brutal punishment and destruction was one that was unwelcome to the communists, the way the communists looked at the population, was also unwelcome to their historical mythos, the idea that there was a, um, um, as it were, a particular um, role for the party in helping to free an oppressed people as a whole and defend them in the case of the Soviet Union in the Great Patriotic War. Then separate to that, obviously, in some parts of Eastern Europe, there were anti-Semitic, quite strong anti-Semitic traditions. Um, that's obviously a very uncomfortable issue. It's been an uncomfortable issue in areas, some of which collaborated with the Germans, Romania, for example. Um, so there were a whole series of cross-currents to think about. Um, the thing that I would, the word I would use to try and draw together what I've just said with what I was talking about earlier was the word diminishment. Um, there were relative, there were obviously, you know, I mean, it's, it's rude to people who are mad to say that Holocaust deniers are mad, but, you know, you understand what I mean. There were Holocaust deniers, 
but the more pronounced tendency, which is one which we see today, but also one we saw in the communist era, uh, was what I call Holocaust diminishment. In other words, either today looking for equivalence with other things, so you know the argument that in some way German civilians uh, were equally um, uh, you know, uh, victims, or the argument that um, really what one should be focusing on is the plight of all Poles under German rule or all Soviets under citizens under German occupation rather than specifically those of, of Jews. Now, that is not the same as Holocaust denial, though it sometimes amounted to Holocaust denial because basically they often just left out um, that element of it and indeed both in terms of what happened and the volition, the reason for it. Uh, but usually it was more a case of Holocaust diminishment. Uh, I was very struck reading your book. You mentioned that when uh, um, Auschwitz first um, opened as a monument, it, there was a, an inscription uh, which was, said it was for the martyrdom of the Polish nation and, and other nations, no, no mention of, of the Jews at all. Um, uh, at Auschwitz and other concentration camps that have since been uh, to a greater or lesser extent preserved. Wh when did the, the predominance of the Jewish experience uh, start, to, uh, start to be the, the major feature there? Well, it, I think it's fair to say that there has been a, um, a change in the uh, post-communist years, but it's also fair to say that in those post-communist years, depending upon the... Um, um, the, as it were, the politics of it, um, this process has not always been an easy one. And if you're specifically looking at Auschwitz, there's quite a lot of that's been published on the contest between Catholic and Jewish interpretations of Auschwitz, and including in terms of, you know, papal visits, etc., etc., um, if you're looking at Romania, for example, um, Marshal Antoniescu, who was the dictator from 1940 to 1944, actively persecuted Jews, uh, executed for war crimes by, in 1946, and very much a persona non grata during the communist years. In the 1990s, um, you know, he was proclaimed as an anti-Soviet nationalist, cities rushed to name streets after him, and he was celebrated in 1994 by a large commemorative exhibit opened in the National Military Museum. And as we, uh, as we draw this to a conclusion, uh, at the moment there's a debate in Britain about the uh, Holocaust Memorial being built in uh, Victoria Gardens, just um, adjacent to the Houses of Parliament. Uh, there's some debate about the nature of the design. There's also a debate about whether uh, having it next to Parliament is the right location for it. How is Britain uh, reflecting on, on how best to commemorate the Holocaust, given the fact that the Holocaust did not happen on, on uh, British soil? And uh, has, how has that changed in the last 30 years or so? Well, again, I discussed that in the book, but what I would say is that, in, first of all, as, as far as the monument is concerned, I published an article on that saying, pointing out there already was a Holocaust Memorial Monument in Britain, um, in, um, in the park, Hyde Park, and I wasn't sure that it was sensible to have another one which might act as the focus for... Uh, as we've seen with the statue of Churchill for uh, demonstrations, etc., etc., um, I think Holocaust awareness in Britain has been un was underlined both by the 
uh, extent to which it was put under on the national curriculum, uh, by the way in which the Holocaust Educational Trust has been extremely effective, uh, by the roles of British uh, politicians and royalty. I mean, Her Majesty visiting uh, Bergen Belsen on her state visit in 2015 was a very important um, step. Um, but I, I'd like, I don't want to end on this. I want to end by going back, in fact, because I think actually the British side is relatively marginal to the broader question. That is, I think this point about diminishment as opposed to um, you know, an engagement with the past, a sense that there is some moral purpose in engagement with history. And I think that the the point about um, the Holocaust is that unless people have some sense of the what happened and that it's not to be smoothed away by just saying, oh, terrible things happened and, you know, I was upset because I had to go past the statue of Cecil Rhodes and that's as bad as feeling that I'm, you know, people went to Treblinka, say. Unless you actually have that people get a grip on themselves, that understand that there are distinctions between terrible things that happened and why they happened, unless we move away from a sort of, you know, just spread a kind of which everybody has a grievance. And so that you have with the Holocaust, not something that is specific only to Jews, though that is very important to them, but also something that is important to everybody. And that, I think, is something we need to underline, that there are real events that happen in history, that they have meaning, and that we need to understand them, and not just to put our own narcissistic sense that we ourselves are upset about something else in order to cover our everything else with the same sort of sort of glop, uh, which is where we seem to be at the present day, stage. Well, Professor Jeremy Black, author of The Holocaust, History and Memory, thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk. Thank you.